Welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Chiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get into it. So in today's episode, I wanted to go over a subject I don't really know a lot about, and that is the subject of gins, or as it's called in some places, genies. But I want to stick to the main uh, stories and lore about gin and see where we get today. All right, so let's jump right into it. Our first article is from BuzzFeed News, 16 Spooky Gin Stories That Will Freak You Out. This isn't Aladdin's genie. All right, and that's written by Ahmed Ali Akbar. For the uninitiated, jinn are creatures made of smokeless fire that are mentioned in the Quran and throughout Islamic mythology. The two most famous jinns are probably the Muslim devil, Shaitan, and the jinn in Aladdin's lamp from 1001 Nights. Do-do-do. These two are powerful exceptions. Most of the time, jinns are portrayed as invisible tricksters who whisper, confuse, and change shape. People responding to my call for jinn stories were either really pumped or didn't want to invoke the demons. Number one, the fight. One time, my mother-in-law was sitting in her bed. She looked over and saw a woman sitting in the chair next to her bed with long, pointy fingers and a face with very sharp angles. She was so frustrated and annoyed with the gins they see a lot in their house and are no longer afraid, just really annoyed by them, that she reached out and grabbed the gin by its wrist. She yelled, Get out! I'm tired of you! Get out! It started to try to pull its wrist away, and eventually tried to bite her hand because she wouldn't let go. She pulled her hand away before it bit her, and the gin vanished. That was from Shekana Blue. Number two, the gin and the locket. At my boarding school, we had a few cases of bullying. In one instance, a bully broke a chain of a student's necklace. As soon as that happened, the girl started to speak in a male voice while her body contorted in strange positions. It is said it was a djinn and had traveled from a faraway place. Meanwhile, the bully's tongue swelled and almost prevented her from breathing. Long story short, teachers were called into the room. Apparently, her parents knew and had gotten the chain for her daughter from a shaman to hold the djinn in. All right. Communing with Children by Anonymous. Number five, The Busybody. I grew up in an Arab household with many Arab family and friends, so I've heard many scary gin stories. A family friend of mine claimed that she went to bed one night and her whole house was a mess. By the time she woke up, her whole house was clean. For some reason, that freaked me out when I was very little. Every night, I made sure that my room was clean so that the gins wouldn't clean it for me. Nowadays, being a wife and a full-time college student, I could only pray that a gin would clean my house for me. And what the heck, cook dinner as well. Number six, the night whispers. A few years ago, when I was on my third trimester of pregnancy, I would only be able to fall asleep when the dawn came. 
Just as I was about to fall asleep one night, I felt pressure on the end of my bed, near my feet, as if someone very heavy sat on the bed, which was weird because I didn't even hear anyone come into the room. No creaking doors, no footsteps. Just then, an eerie voice spoke straight into my mind. The language was intelligible and distorted. I knew it wasn't human, but to my surprise, I understood what it was trying to say. My brain processed it easily, as if I learned the language somewhere in the past. It asked me to pray my morning prayer. I was too sleepy and too scared to actually open my eyes. What if its face was directly right in front of my nose? I responded in my head, communicating without actually opening my mouth to say a word. Later, please. I'm so tired. I didn't get to sleep. After I said so, the weight on the end of my bed lifted. The air, which was previously heavy, with the presence, became light and clear. I opened my eyes a little and saw the earliest morning light gleam through my window. My door stood still. No one came in or out. I fell back to sleep. Number seven, the landlord. So apparently, in Saudi, my aunt lived in a house that was always being visited by a particular djinn who used to annoy her family. Once she was laying in bed at night with her husband, she felt that something was off. And when she left the room, she found her husband watching TV on the couch. When she went back to the bedroom to confront the djinn, it laughed and went away. I an excerpt from that. Um, but generations back, one of my forefathers taught Quran, the holy book, child, a child from a djinn's family. The jinn child became a hafiz, memorized the Quran by heart. The jinn's parents appeared in front of my grandfather, and in return, as thanks, they offered him many things. There were huge trays full of gold and silver, were brought or whatnot, but he would not accept it. He said, I did this because I believe I will be rewarded by Allah. They wouldn't go. The jinn said, you have done such a big favor to our generations that we want to give you something. So after many arguments, they wouldn't go. My grandfather said, okay, then what I would ask you is that you have to take an oath and promise me that for the next seven generations, you would not hurt anyone or make anyone's life miserable. All right. Very cool story. Number nine, the territorial gen. My great uncle went to visit his cousins in India. His cousins told him that since it was summertime, they would all sleep in the courtyard together. However, they told him he wasn't allowed to place his bedding in a particular corner. Apparently, a djinn slept there, and strange things happened if anyone disturbs that corner. My great uncle said it was nonsense and decided to sleep there anyway. One night, he woke up on the other side of the courtyard. He laughed at first and thought it was his cousins who were pranking him and decided to sleep there again. The following night, the same thing happened, so he, he left a note next to his pillow saying, Stop pranking me. I know there is no gin. That night, he said he was pushed off his bed, and the bedding was thrown on the other side. A note was thrown in his lap, which said, I sleep here. The scary part is, it wasn't that dark, and there was no one there. Number 10. Mr. Fantastic my uncle once told me a story about a couple. The husband used to work in the forest, so he would be sent on long trips outside the village. His wife was usually lonely, but she befriended a man. He would sit on her courtyard wall with his back facing her, so she could only see his face when he turned around to answer her back. It was a sweet friendship. One evening, she asked him to come over for tea and bring his wife along with her. 
But instead of getting down and using the door, he took his leg and stretched it ten feet down her wall to her side of the yard. He said, why didn't you offer me tea before? I'd love to come and have chai with you. All right. Number 13, never leaving home. Recently, my mother-in-law was helping her daughter fix up her home, and as my mother-in-law stood up in the hall, she heard someone whisper in her ear, you think you can move and get rid of us? Guess what? We are coming too. You will never get rid of us. No one else heard it. Number 14, the laughter. My mother was visiting her parents. While she was praying in her room, she heard her mom laughing at the doorway. After she finished praying, she went to her mom's room and asked, Why were you laughing at me earlier? My grandmother replied, I've been in bed for a few hours now. I wasn't laughing at you. My mom concluded it was a djinn trying to distract her from her prayers. In the same house, you could hear footsteps walking throughout the house and met might feel someone sit on the bed while you're sleeping. I was also used to having one I also used to have one in my bedroom. Every night around 3 a.m. I'd hear this old lady crying. We live in the corner apartment on the top floor and I couldn't get out find out from where it was coming from. I thought it was coming from under my bed. It got so bad I had to stop sleeping in there. Number 15. The voices. In our old apartment, my oldest niece would wake up around 3 a.m. She would hear what sounded like a party going on and hear all of our voices. But when she would go into the living room, the lights would be off and no one would be in the room. Number 16. The Prank Caller All right, welcome back. I found another article on wesling.org, but basically has pretty much the same list of gen stories that we were just reading on BuzzFeed News, but it has some more that were not mentioned in that one. So I'll go ahead and read those. There was a man who went to his village, Masid, to pray for Fahir every morning. Sorry if I'm messing up these words. <laughs> The Masid is on a dirt road, and the front door leads directly into the prayer area. One morning, he went to pray. He finds no one else there, so he prayed by himself at the front of the room. While he was praying, he undoubtedly felt a presence behind him, as if there were people standing behind him. Furthermore, he felt as if there were a bright a light shining behind him. After his prayer, he quickly turned around to find that the room was empty, just as he entered it. The same day, he ran into a friend of his who was like, Hey, I saw that there was a huge turnout at the Fahir. It's F-A-J-R today. I walked by the Masid, and through the front door, I could see rows and rows of men all dressed in white. So his friend saw more people than he did in there while he was praying. When I was little in Sudan, my family had a farm, and it was a special place to me. But the farm, wonderful as it was, was terrifying at night. That might have something to do with the fact that the farm is between the Nile and a graveyard. And one day, as we were pulling up to the farm, I saw a fire that was the size of a person. That is to say, a fire that was exactly the size of a human being, from far away in the farmhouse. 
Casually, I watched this fire take a few steps to the left while nothing else caught on fire, and then vanish. You might say that I had an overactive imagination as a 10-year-old. I would say that you were incorrect, because I remember it incredibly vividly. I told my mom, I told my dad, one of them casually mentioned I might have seen a djinn. All right. When I started writing about djinns, I would have had these... I would have these very interesting, vivid, imaginary encounters with jinns. I was about to move to Egypt, and I had this small room, in which I had a large desk, too large for the room, and a bed. And in order to get into bed, you had to push the desk chair all the way under the desk, because there wasn't enough room for me to get in and out otherwise. So one night, I had gone to sleep, and I sort of half woke, because I thought I heard something, somebody clearing their throat, or moving something. And there, in my desk chair, staring at me, was this guy, this man, with long, scraggly hair, these extreme, extremely intense eyes, and he was just looking, looking. And I sat straight up in bed and screamed, as one might. Naturally, you know, how the story ends. There was nothing there, of course. The interesting thing, and the reason why this stuck with me the way that most dreams I had as a kid did not was because that chair I had to push all the way under the desk in order to get in bed had been pulled out and was facing the bed. Number seven, six years ago. Six years ago, we moved houses and everything was fine until we stupidly got the Ouija board. We asked it some questions and somehow came up with a phone number. We called the phone number, and I don't remember what the name was, but the name the board gave us matched the person. So we hung up, and then a few days later, my mom heard a, a voice calling her name from downstairs. She thought it was my dad, so she went downstairs. But it was a white shape. So we called an imam. We thought that it got rid of it, but it didn't. It kept happening to all of us. We kept hearing our names coming from the downstairs, even though no one was there. So we moved. All right, number eight. There's this house in Lahore that belongs to my extended family. All four brothers that lived there with their wives and families. All four of them died under mysterious circumstances, and they all died very young. So the house is just inhabited by four windows or widows and their kids, who are my cousins, who I hung out with growing up. It seemed like time and space just didn't work the same way in this house as they did in the outside world. There was an upstairs section to the house, and my aunt was always telling us not to go up there. But we were kids, and we wanted to, like, have another playing area. So we went up there, and the furniture was all facing the wrong direction, like not set up properly and haphazardly placed. So we rearranged the furniture and set it up so it could be like a lounge. But the next day we went up there, the furniture was set up the exact same way as before we moved it. We asked everyone in the house if they'd gone up there, if they had moved the furniture, and no one had done it. So I mean, in conclusion, the only thing you can really say is that the house had some gins living in there. Alright, very cool stories. Um, it looks like a lot of these are from... I think either a YouTube or a podcast episode of See Something, Say Something, episode 39, where they're talking about gins. So 
Very cool, very cool. And we will go over to a new article. This is from LondNR.com. Entry 5, Jen Crazy, Stories of Magic and Madness in London. I might have been seven the first time I encountered counter-sorcery. The scene is East End Primary School with Catholic inclinations, although it was not the staff who flagged me for being under a spell. They did notice and willingly report to my father, however, that I was a wild boy with an overactive imagination. Before the cultural evolution of the 2010s, one was just left to deal with ADHD by themselves. You did not need help. You needed a firm hand or a cure. My family were partial to both. The symptoms were obvious. I struggled to focus in school. I was quick to anger, and apparently I spoke to myself at nauseam. As such, speculation spread that perhaps there was something in me. My mother rolled up a delicate scroll of Arabic scripture and hid inside a brass head with a brass or a black string. The bead was narrow and cylindrical, and it contained the divine power of the imam, or witch doctor, I'm not sure which, who had whispered charms onto it. She strung it around my stomach, and with this rare gift of protection tucked beneath my red polo shirt, she sent me on to school. I ran to school with my secret. I did not tell my teacher or plan on showing it to anyone until a friend of mine named Muhammad walked in through the era's old wooden doorframe into our era's old classroom. He was from Kenya. Strung around his bicep was a familiar black string and golden bead. I knew exactly what it was. That is a, dab- a tabis. Muhammad's parents, like mine, knew the secrets of our medicine, and unlike mine, allowed their son to bear that amulet proudly. We shared the exciting news that we were both being protected from evil. Then, as we ran out to play, the string around my torso snapped. The bead dislodged itself and fell to the ground. I didn't notice anything, but my mother never bothered providing a new one. It is this last particular detail that I often turn over in my mind. With no further input, I slowly grew out of the habit of speaking to myself. My behavior improved. My imagination tempered. Was the mere morning I had that charm strapped around my stomach enough to banish the djinn? Perhaps he decided to leave of his own accord. Or maybe I extracted it myself with every word forged in ink. Excised it with the comic cosmic strokes of my brush. Or perhaps he remains, is one who impregnates my mind with stories. Since antiquity, the evil eye, or Nazar, has been represented by a glass bead of various shades of blue and white, designed to look like a blue eye, and the ambiguous charm can be found throughout Asia, although nowhere as much as Turkey or Persia. The explanation behind the choice of hue is speculative, but some suggest it lies in the fear stoked by the first appearance of blue eyes caused by a recessive gene that had come to the fore in Central Asia. The eye, in all their sky-blue terror, or their lapis-rich mineral beauty, became synonymous with sorcery and power. My grandmother had blue eyes, although sometimes they were green, and other times they were gray. 
Her powers must have exceeded the common blue-eyed witch tenfold. She was, according to many, third-party sources. Other ancients who still lingered among the youth of the tribe. A breathtaking beauty in her youth. She lived a difficult life. One of the prejudices thrown at her like mud was the claim that she possessed at least a limited degree. My grandmother, already susceptible to the evil eye due to the envy of others and the perversions of evil spirits, then did the unthinkable. She went out at night in the red sour chemise of all things. She had tried to warn her the red dresses made one vulnerable to possession. People had tried to warn her. Most say that when that was when the monster that lived inside of her stalked her home. Supposedly, the monster lived with her even in old age, and there was a turning its eye on the younger women, my sisters, my nieces. She lived with us when I was 18. Her symptoms were grave. She spoke in a man's voice. Her eye colors changed. She chanted in Arabic, but none of the words of the Quran. When did she learn Arabic? Not in the village of Bangladesh, surely, where Islamic education was weak. It is said that our ancestors were Yemeni travelers, or maybe even persecuted settlers from Iran. Maybe it has been lost in Bangladesh since then. Whatever the case, it followed her to Britain, to London, where there are already enough ghosts. At night, she would walk up and down the corridor, whispering, if she could, she would get into your room and watch you while you slept. The hysteria in our family was uncontrollable, and I'm ashamed to say it was starting to leave a mark on me. One of those nights, I could hear her go up and down the corridor, whispering a single word in repetition. La. It was Arabic for no. La, la, la. She was approaching my room now, and the terror I felt in the moment is hard to describe. La. Knowing what she would try to do, I grasped two heavy dumbbells and wedged them against the door. Her hand wrapped around the handle on the other side, and her whispering came to a stop. She squeezed and pushed, but the door did not budge. I left her to deal with whatever pain, whatever was afflicting her, by herself. I wish I hadn't done that. I was writing my second novel when I began reading excerpts from the Atha... The Veda, or the Veda of Magical Formulas. As a second-generation expatriate, I, like many others, were undergoing the same bloated process of self-identification. I was writing fantasy and needed a huge, needed a hard magic system which, through strict rules and logic, could be presented to the reader as science and a worldview of the characters. This was no easy task. I should just take out a leaf of my barber's book of wisdom. A musical or a musician in his spare time, he once boldly, without prompt, declared, Words are spells, bro. I truly believe that if you learn how to speak, you're learning how to bewitch people. Language is a type of magic. Think about it. We're making random noises, but now both of us seem to understand each other and the world. He wasn't wrong. The same came across in thousands of years old text out of India. I thought it was a descendant of an ancient culture. Maybe I, too, had a right over the words our Hindu cousins called magic. My brother-in-law, in the meanwhile, had discovered I was looking into Hindu sorcery, 
and let me into a terrifying, delicious piece of information. Years ago, when he was a volunteer for Islamic Relief, the office had received a strange gift. The gift was a hunk of brass and other cheap materials, a diamond of a gaudy craftsmanship with blue rock embezzled in the center. Had the minerals used in its making been even a little real, it might have looked like a mogul treasure. My brother-in-law and his friends fiddled with the curious trinket, till at one point the middle piece with the blue stone popped open. A delicate scroll tumbled out, just like the ones witches and imams write charms onto. They froze. Was this a kind blessing or an evil curse? Why had they sent this scroll to a charity house run by Muslims? What was written inside, I asked. I don't know. It wasn't Arabic. It was like ancient Bengali. Huh? My mind started like an old car battery in stutters. Ancient Bengali? That makes no sense. Are you sure it wasn't Sanskrit? It wasn't Sanskrit. How can you be so sure? Because I recognize the letters. He bellowed out in laughter. Really? All of it? He shrugged uneasily. Most of it. It's for sure Bengali. If you say so, you should find out what it is. I suspect it's a curse from the Arthavaveda. You'd be surprised how evil some of the words can be. Come over later this week and we can find out together. That weekend, I found myself in his flat late at night. The men were huddled around a computer with a notepad, piecing together letters and words from sites and bad translation apps. What have you discovered? There was a pause. It's definitely not Bengali. Sanskrit? Sanskrit. I just recognize so much of it. Ancestral language? I explained. What does it say? It's a curse. It includes snake, heart, envenomed, and curse, and death. But no words of protection. Notes. Gins. You would think they're everywhere. There seems to be millions in London. They're the core root of all of our problems, at least. In the dysphoric communities where the old world rituals of black magic and highly profitable counter profession of exorcism is still practiced. It allows bad parents to explain to their relatives why and how they lost control over their family unit, why your husband has failed so frequently in establishing a successful business, and it reaffirms in the wavering the reality of God. Once again, at the behest of my work, I find myself wrangling with an incendiary topic. The question remains as to how much of myself and my community am I willing to expose? How much of this information is personal as much as the collective identity or collective secret can be personal? Regardless of what many in the community believe, I would argue Islam does not touch on the notion of possessions or even evil eye. In fact, I think not enough scholars have pointed to the opposite. I'm no mufti, so I won't try to convince anyone. The question does still remain as to where the jinn craze comes from. The answer, I think, is that it is simply a cultural brushstroke on an imported canvas. Unwilling to mute out the echoes of our past, we allowed for the historical seepage. Paganistic tendencies and polytheistic myths tinged our understanding of relatively young religion fresh out of the Arabian Peninsula. As the religion crossed borders, the wisdom of the crowds replaced the strict 
jurisprudence of Islam. That is why there are so many jinns in my childhood. All right, we go over to the nationalnews.com where they have an article, even a skeptic can enjoy a good scary story about a jinn. There's a story about a man who boarded a bus somewhere in Saudi Arabia. It was packed with men and women who said they were on their way to a wedding. As the bus left the road to drive along certain desert plains, the women began chanting and singing a haunting melody. As the sun started to set, the man, not- the man noticed a transformation. The other's passengers' feet suddenly all became hooves, like those of goats. This tale was told to me at a wedding once in Jeddah, and another time at a woman's mahils here in the UAE. It has made the rounds in many countries. Almost everyone who grew up in the Middle East has a gin-related story to tell, one they've been told or say, or one that happened to them personally. The long-awaited Jin, the UAE's first horror film, finally makes its world premiere at the Abu Dhabi Film Festival tomorrow night. This reminds us of the odd fascination we have with horror and our fear of the unknown and unexplained. The reaction is partly psychological, but it is also mental, or physiological, and is also mental. People are curious by nature around things they can't properly define. It's the same for love, for how does one really define love? There's a whole chapter in the Quran called Al-Jinn, and verses throughout the Holy Book refer to them. We read about them in school and talked, and continue to talk about them at home and social gatherings. As children, I recall, we were not allowed to go alone to abandoned places, or were not told not to walk near water at night. Some people just don't believe in jinn nor in ghosts or spirits or the devil, but that doesn't stop a lot of people from watching horror films and spreading stories. One of my first stories I wrote after arriving in UAE involved a haunted place in Ras al-Khaimah. Emirati friends directed me to the palace, but insisted I enter alone. They were too scared to go inside. I still asked why I wasn't scared, and if I saw them inside, I was advised by a Muslim scholar to avoid writing about jinn, as I could risk bringing a curse upon myself. You could end up being haunted by them, he warned. As I was typing out that story, things began disappearing, notably the keys to my house and car. I began to think perhaps this was not a failure of memory. I attached a big pink ribbon to each of my keys. I had been a witness to two exorcisms, one in Saudi and one in Lebanon, where two young women were reportedly possessed by jinn. I can tell you that the haunted palace was not anywhere near as frightening as what happened during those exorcism sessions. One, I was sure, was linked to physiological issues, as I had previously worked in the psychiatric ward. But those in attendance wouldn't hear of that explanation and shunned me for even raising it. We like to listen to jinn stories, which helps explain why some very famous jinn, like the genie of the tale of Aladdin's lamp, have been revived through the ages, in books and even in films. There there have been several recent books about jinn by Western writers, and regularly there are books on this issue by Arab writers. Off Layla Wa Layla, known in English as One Thousand and One Nights, a collection of tales supposedly told by the enchanting Shahrazad never goes out of vogue.
There are good jinn and bad jinn. Some take the form of humans, and others take the form of strange creatures. Whatever you believe, stories about them continue to interest the public. One of the stories friends from my all-girls school in Saudi still talk about this day is the last washroom stall no one ever dared to use. It was said to be occupied by a female jinn who was waiting for someone or something. The stall next to that was never used either, just in case. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so we go over to MangoBaaz.com, where they have a bunch of gen stories. All right, so let's jump into some of them. These gen stories from the life of a Pakistani exorcist will keep you up at night. This is by Abu's Jens. Apparently, that is an official book that contains many of these stories. Alright, this is called Fatima's Mirror. Ayesha, tell me something. Gee, Abu, if a stranger comes knocking at the door and asks you to let him in, will you? Of course not, Abu John. Beta, the same rules apply to things. You cannot, under any circumstances, bring home a thing whose origin is unknown to you. But Abu, what about my new Spider-Man collection? Well, I can't put a stop to the newly packaged goodies that your Nano and Ami get you, of course. But Beta John, I mean things from Sunday bazaars, or used things. Jinko owner ka apko na pataho. This is the sole reason I do not allow gifts from Amir Uncle, Wahi Joe Architect Hane. He brings all these stones and clay models to decorate his house with. It's absurd. He doesn't know that each and everything has an aura, i.e. energies, negative and positive. Even in the Quran, it is said that what we eat affects us. By this, I do not mean the number of carbohydrates or proteins that we digest. No, if we eat haram food, or a meal made by a napak hands, or with napak ingredients, it somehow somewhere has an impact. Ashu, today I will tell you about a girl named Fatima. She was a little older than you, perhaps 17, but she was quite mature for her age. When I used to manage our Johar town Walla office, back when your dadaji was alive, an accountant named Arshed worked under me. He was still giving his CA exams, but we paid him well because he was married and he had Fatima, who'd often accompany her father to the office. From my sweets drawer, I would hand her the honey eclairs you're so fond of as well. For years, till she turned 17, she only used to come to me for Mithi Golian, or to hand over her school's chalan form. 
But that day, Ayesha, when Arshad brought her, she smiled in an unusual manner, as if we, her and I, had some unfinished business and had met a long time ago. Pale eyes and yellow skin, which I recognized instantly, gave the indication that Arshad had brought along with Fatima, Betty, a demon, attached to her very being. She's not well, actually, Arshad said, patting Fatima on the back. Since yesterday, she's been puking, sir. I told her to rest, but she insisted on meeting you. I nodded. Arshad, can you let us be for a moment? Arshad looked at me hesitantly, and after taking a few steps back, left with the door half shut. Us walked. He, we had wooden doors, so the see-through glass ones. I have ab. I was going to ask Fadima to sit down when, quite frankly, she positioned herself on one of those old leather chairs across the room and hoisted her legs on my table. I knew what was to follow. I, so I just recited Allah's name and waited for it. Bat Nahim Kare Gatu. I refused to look at my accountant's daughter because with her legs on the table, her shawar had pulled back, making her bare legs visible. Han Main Bu Ye Tutu Bahut Pak Mar Hai. I fiddled with my gold-plated Allah necklace, and when she saw me doing that, she grinned, uncovered now her stained teeth. Terra Allah is a nik bak gay adnan. I could have acted at once, but Ayesha, I was a coward, and I didn't. I rang the bell and had our shed come back inside. Fatima's legs weren't on the table anymore, and some innocence had regained itself on her face. You see, she had inside her an Iblis, a demon, a Shaitan, whose tribe member I had dealt with before. These demons, they can recognize the men who hurt their kind very well. And if you're dealing with one type, it's easy to tell them apart. So it recognized me, and I recognized it. Even though it had possessed Fatima, because of something or some action of hers. But like I said, Beta, I knew their kind very well back then and I still felt guilty because it had insisted on meeting me, and maybe somehow I had something to do with this. That night I didn't sleep very well. I told your Ami about the incident, and she was very angry. Gusa tu bunta tha kyon kai Fatima ki juga meri beti bi tu ha sakti tu a ka main usai bai ase chord data. So the next day, I decided to talk to Arshad, only to find out that he hadn't come to the office, but his phone was powered off. After work, I decided to go to his house. Beta, your daughter or son might have this ability, so it's vital for you to know that when Allah chooses you to deal with these things and see them with your naked eye, you have a responsibility he will greatly reward you for. I hadn't done my spirituality or demonology course back then to understand the spirits in different religions, but Jamil Sahab was still my friend, so I phoned him before going to Arshad's. On getting there, however, Arshad refused to open the door. Arshad, main a anar sahab ahain. You didn't come to the office today, Jamil replied. It took us 20 minutes to get into the house, which was a mess. 
Arshad was sobbing hysterically and hitting himself. During his sobs, Jamil got to know that Arshad had slapped Fatima on account of her being acting unnaturally, as she had run away from the house. I, on the other hand, started examining the house. Fatima's mother and all other relatives had left to look for her, while Arshad had chosen to stay in case she returned. He had no clue about what was happening to his daughter. And at that point, Jamil and I felt right in not telling him. When I went to her room, Ayesha, I almost immediately felt a repelling energy coming from behind the door. There sat a medium-sized mirror set. Just like you know where your brother is hiding because you're familiar with all his hiding spots, I knew that it was the mirror, which emitted negative energies. Grabbing it wasn't hard, but I heard a squeal, and I took it to the living room. Yekahan Selia, I asked. With swollen eyes, Yashad, Yashad Arshad looked at me and said something. Just tell Adnan, Jamil cut in. Where did you get this from? One dollar shop. Jamil and I looked at each other, and after giving hope to Arshad, we decided to leave. We were a step closer to finding Fatima. Jamil and I then traveled around town to get to the $1 shop's owner. It was past 12 and the shop was closed. The mirror was in the back seat and occasionally it would start with this annoying Sardard Walla song. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Kuch plastic, kuch fantastic. Adnan kya ajib bahut hai. I laughed. It's almost important. It's also important to take the whole situation lightheartedly in order to get a better understanding the picture. Mir main sells dele huehain ganabut nahin ga raha jamil. The owner was a kind man whose wife, on being informed about Jamil's wad town, almost immediately handed us the shop's keys. We told her that we weren't looking for the keys. We needed some information. And that too, Faran. It was one of those days when your Ami kept calling, so after telling her I was busy and I couldn't explain, I turned off my phone. The man, I forgot his name, you know how bad I am with names, he told us that anyone can leave anything at the $1 shop in exchange for money, as long as the item is a tip-top condition. He didn't remember who left the mirror and told us he could happily accompany us to the shop to check the register. We did not refuse. Beta, everything in life is linked. People are linked, the happenings are linked, so to put two and two together, you have to understand. I might have the power to sense the paranormal, but if it weren't for Jamil's expertise or my experience, today I wouldn't have saved so many lives. The three of us went to Jamil's police van to the $1 shop. It was a 30-minute long drive, and the mirror wouldn't stop singing the song that you and your bai love to sing. So the shop owner took out the mirror's cells for batteries. He did almost faint when the cells were in his hand, and our eyes were on the road. The mirror next to him started singing again. He attempted throwing the mirror out of the car, but Jamil switched seats with him. And though he was awfully scared, we promised that we would explain the matter to him once we reached his shop. Just as we arrived, the shop owner was reluctant to come out of the vehicle and was also unwilling to be left alone with the mirror. So we th took the mirror with us inside the shop. 
On researching, Jamil told me that the mirror had no entry in the past six months in the register. Of course, we didn't argue with the owner because, Beta, when you're confused, and yes, your Abu had spent half his life being puzzled when dealing with these matters, you stay quiet. With the supernatural involved, everything is possible. Maybe our eyes weren't seeing the entry, or maybe there hadn't been an entry in the first place. We got a call in the car from Arshad, screaming at the top of his lungs to return Fatima's mirror because his Betty had returned safely and was throwing a tantrum upon not being able to find her prized possession. Jamil was going to yell at Arshad when I snatched the phone from him. Arshad, I said calmly, we will be there. Thikai, we are sorry that we took the mirror. Saying so, I dropped the call. Jamil looked at me, horrified. He's screaming because what's in his daughter is attached to this thing, and you're returning it to him? Bai John, Aplu me please, Mare Gar Utan Dan. A voice came from the back seat. With his color flushed, the owner was even afraid to be in the same car as us. Kyre, we thanked him and dropped him to his place. Acha, Jamil continued his argument. We should destroy the mirror and get rid of it. Beta, your uncle Jamil is a wise man. But he's overthinking. He loses his ability to understand situations. And this is one of those moments. Bring the mirror outside with the Quran. We'll start then. Jamil groaned. When we reached the house, it was rather silent. I expected a crowd outside or maybe Arshad shouting at me from behind the door, but none of what I had anticipated was happening. Job Jamil was done with the Hisar and Darud. We got out. Anything? I shook my head. Nothing. I mumbled under my breath. According to the plan, Jamil was to stay behind, but he insisted on coming. I took out a cloth from the trunk of the van, and standing adjacent to Fatima's Betty's room, I started to pray. I had just gone into Sajud when my head started to spin, and I felt something drop on my back. My eyes were shut tight, not because I was scared, but because I needed to concentrate. There was no use in being scared. Jamil's puffed up breath, however, could be sensed. Beta, the key is not to let them smell your fear. Han, they exist. Han, they can harm us. But Allah says, but Allah say, bar kar, there's nothing. So with that belief, I complete the entire prayer with a 17-year-old on my back. When I said my salam, an upside-down head emerged from on top of my head. Hu adnan? Nahin abdi hona hai, I replied. Nam kai hai, tumhara, I continued. Jamil stood by the car, now with the mirror, and, I, and a lighter in his hand. Some Alright, so apparently that story got cut off, so I will finish it. Jamil stood by the car now with the mirror and lighter in his hand, something that wasn't needed. Some demons, Ayesha, take years to be exercised, others months, some even result in deaths, but this one had quite frankly been my favorite type. I grasped Fatima's hand as we continued to argue. 
I recited the Quran, and as my fingers burnt because of Fatima's body heat, Jamil started to bring the mirror close to Fatima. We let the demon see its true form. We were up till dawn, and then we took the mirror with us. We covered Fatima and her marks with cloth and I used that I had used as a prayer mat. Over the night, the demon had even become you, Ayesha. Talked like you, called me Abu John like you, but I didn't stop hurting it, because I knew it wasn't you. Fatima is alright now. She's studying literature at Canard College. I never got a shard to work with me again, but that's alright. Now recite Ayat u Kursi and go to bed. The writer Ayesha Muzaffar runs the famous Instagram account Abu's Jins, which he narrates gripping tales around supernatural events. Very cool. I'll have to follow that one for more stories. Very neat. All right. So I wanted to go over to the National Library of Medicine, where they have an article written, um, Possession and Jinn. It's by Najat Khalifa, MRC Psych 1, and Tim Hardy, MRC Psych 2. Religion remains a powerful influence on notions of health and disease. One Islamic concept that has entered into Western mythology is that of jinn or genies. And as in the story of Aladdin, however, according to Islamic belief, jinns are real creatures that form a world other than that of mankind capable of causing physical and mental harm to human beings. An example of such harm is possession. As defined by Littlewood, possession is the belief that an individual has been entered by an alien spirit or other parahuman force, which then controls the person or alters that person's actions and identity. To the observer, this would be manifested as an altered state of consciousness. In the UK, gen possession is most likely to be seen among people from Pakistan, Bangladesh, the Middle East, or North Africa. Some commentators claim that possession is a culture-bound syndrome, and others argue that although the manifestations may differ according to culture, the underlying theme is always the same. According to Whitwell and Barker, the word possession is used in two different ways. The first refers to true possession, invoking the supernatural. The second, which makes no such assumptions, has been applied to several different states. One example of the second is a syndrome consisting of clouding of consciousness, changed demeanor, tone of voice, and subsequent amnesia. Another is a trance that may be induced deliberately in certain cult settings. According to the Prince, True possession consists of a cold experience, invitation, and unknown influences. Very little has appeared on gen possession in the medical publications. Here we describe cultural and religious and psychiatric aspects and offer guidance on management in clinical practice. There are numerous references to jinn in the Quran and the Hadith, sayings of Prophet Muhammad. According to Islamic writings, jinn live alongside other creatures but form a world other than that of mankind. Though they see us, they cannot be seen. Characteristics they share with human beings are intellect and freedom to choose between right and wrong, between good and bad. But according to the Quran, their origin is different than that of man. And indeed, we created man from dried clay, of altered mud, and the jinn we created aforetime from smokeless flame of fire. Jinn tempt and seduce mankind to stray from Allah, or God. 
Satan or Shaitan is thought to be from their realm. Jinn are said to inhabit caves, deserted places, graveyards, and darkness. According to Sakir, they marry, produce children, eat, drink, and die. But unlike human beings, they have the power to take on different shapes and are capable of moving heavy objects almost instantly from one place to another. The Quran mentions how the prophet Solomon contrived to subjugate the jinn and get them to perform tasks that required strength, intelligence, and skill. In Islamic writings, true jinn possession can cause a person to have seizures, to speak in an incomprehensible language. The possessed is unable to think or speak of his own will. However, according to Aziz, such cases are greatly outnumbered by those of physical or psychological origin, and he castigates faith healers for taking money for treatment of the latter. Attempts have been made by the church to establish criteria for distinguishing real possession from pseudo-possession. In cases of real possession, the task of the therapist who must have who must have strong faith in Allah, is to expel the jinn. This is usually done in one of three ways. Remembrance of God and recitation of the Quran, blowing into the person's mouth, cursing and commanding the jinn to leave, and seeking refuge with Allah by calling upon Allah, remembering him, and addressing his creatures. Some faith healers strike the possessed person, claiming that it is the jinn that suffer the pain. This practice, however, is deplored by Muslim scholars as being far from the principles of Islam and instructions of the Prophet. Psychological and Psychiatric Perspectives Possession states can be understood only through a combination of biological, anthropological, sociological, psychopathological, and experimental perspectives. The patient's own interpretation must be taken into consideration. This will promote collaboration, even if it has little bearing on the treatment given. Instruments that have been deployed or developed to elicit patients' explanatory models include the Illness Perception Questionnaire, the Short Explanatory Model Interview. Shandra Kahir has suggested that possession is best understood by reference to three theoretical frameworks. According to Disassociation Theory, it is a hysterical state in which the id wishes to overwhelm the ego in a state of disassociation. Communication theory holds that possession is exhibited by oppressed individuals who assume a sick role in an attempt to gain attention. Sociocultural theory maintains that possession is culturally sanctioned phenomena to which people are exposed from an early age and the expectations they may experience it later. The most typical psychodynamic conflicts identified by Whitwell and Barker in their study of 16 cases were those of adolescence. The patients were often in close but confused relationships with their families, having difficulties asserting their independence and identity, and experiencing sexual anxieties. Some workers, including Osterk, have stressed the concept of suggestion as an explanation for possession states. Indeed, Whitwell and Barker found that the idea of possession had been directly suggested to some of their patients. Nonetheless, gen possession is characteristically involuntary, in contrast to voodoo possession, which is sought by the person concerned. Some Western practitioners may be surprised to find possession state as a diagnostic entity within the diagnostic 
Statistical Manual 4, and in the International Classification of Disease, version 10. The criteria in those two documents are similar, apart from the marked distress and impairment in social and occupational functioning included in DSM-4 and ICD-10. Trance or possession disorders are classified under dissociative conversion disorders, disorders in which there is a temporary loss of sense of personal identity and full awareness of surroundings. Possession or trance has to be involuntary and to occur outside of religious and culturally accepted situations. This classification excludes states associated with psychotic disorders, affective disorders, organic personality disorder, post-concussal syndrome, and psychoactive substance intoxication. The following two cases' histories illustrate typical presentations and some of the dilemmas faced by clinicians. Case 1. A 25-year-old woman from Iraq with no previous psychiatric history gradually withdrew from other people, became uncommunicative, and stopped eating and drinking. Investigations revealed no organic disease or severe depressive illness was diagnosed. She underwent electroconvulsive therapy with no much improvement. Her family, believing her to be possessed by a jinn and not wanting to say so to the doctors for fear of being labeled as superstitious, took her to a local faith healer who offered to treat her in a traditional Islamic way. After a few sessions of combined dakir and rumia, her condition improved and she resumed eating and drinking. On recovery, she had no explanation for what had happened, though she remembered the sequence of events. She stated that she had been aware of her surroundings, but unable to initiate anything. She denied feeling low in mood at the time. Five years later, she remains well and without medication. Case number two. A woman of 35 experienced episodes of high fever and confusion, during which her speech became incomprehensible. A local general practitioner diagnosed typhoid fever and prescribed antibiotics. The patient and her family, however, thought she was possessed by a gen, so, they did not, so she did not adhere to the treatment. She was taken to a local faith healer who reinforced their views and treated her in a traditional Islamic way. However, her condition deteriorated over the next few weeks, and she started to have generalized epileptic seizures. One of the authors was then asked to see her. On physical examination, she was jaundiced with hepatomegaly and spenomegaly. On admission to the hospital, she was found to have cerebral malaria, from which she was treated successfully. The above cases illustrate the difficult interactions between cultural beliefs and conventional medicine. Clearly, in any case of alleged gen possession, underlying organic disorders should be excluded by physical examination and by such investigations as are necessary. Any underlying mental disorder should be treated by usual psychiatric methods, but the clinician should respect the cultural issues and avoid directly contradicting statements from the patient or relatives about the reality of possession. When the medicine involves conflict, invites conflict with culture and religion, the therapeutic alliance suffers. Most people are content with to utilize biomedical treatments without giving up traditional explanations of the illness. Therefore, there may be a strong case for involving an imam or religious leader in the management of these cases. Conclusion 
Muslims from Britain's largest ethnic minority group, nearly 3% of the UK population. And in this community, there is a widespread belief in gen possession. The prevalence of gen possession states remain unknown. When medical or psychiatric services become involved, an inclusive, culturally sensitive approach is a good medical practice. In future research, it would be useful to clarify the relationship between explanatory models generated by medical profession, Muslim religious leaders, and the Muslim population of faith healers, with a view to defining better treatment pathways. All right, very cool article. I always love whenever they mix the supernatural with the scientific. Gives it a little credence, and uh, yeah, I always enjoy that. So let's take a little break and get right back into it. All right, so jumping right back into the stories, we go now to ArabLit.org, where they have four gin tales to accompany one of their issues. This is from Sagar, Madhya Pradesh, India. My grandfather Hakim Malvi Shiradin was a herbal medicine practitioner trained in Unani medicine, Greek medicine. He kept sacks of herbs and spices in the house for his practice. My mother reports that some jinn used to pester him by tricking long lines of cardamom and clove in his house, in the house. It got so bad that he one night prayed especially hard as if I fought with Allah to be freed from the troublesome jinn. This ended the problem. Amran Yemen. Um, Al-Sabyan is one of the most important mythical creatures in Yemen's folk heritage. Her name differs from region to region, but she always possesses the same traits and features. She is a female jinn with one leg of a donkey and the other of a goat. Of her breasts, one is very long and she flings it over her back while she, the other is normal. Stories and tales tell of her appearing in the mountains and in abandoned places and only ever to men whom she compels to suckle one of her breasts. If the man chooses her normal breast, um, Al-Sabyan will treat him as though he, she were his mother. If he, however, feeds on her other breast, he becomes her lover. There's no clear explanation as to why Um Al-Sabyan is called that by name, or is called that name. It can be assumed that she got this name because she only appears to men, and Al-Sabyan in the Yemeni dialect means male children. The folk tales say that Um Al-Sabyan can take on any shape she wants. She has appeared in the form of a mother, the wife, or a relative of a person she wants to approach, even in the form of an animal. She is afraid of fire and of blank bottoms. In the story, she gets rid of Um Al-Sabyan by bearing their behinds to her so she gets embarrassed and leaves them alone. If Um al-Sabyan bonds with her victim, she accompanies him at all times and helps in all personal and marital aspects of his life, material aspects of his life. But she also punishes him in many ways when he doesn't heed her words. All right, facts 
Tunisia. Her name is Azuzet Al Kayla. And growing up, I pictured her roaming the residential neighborhoods of Sfax with cane in her hand, a crooked back, and a ferocious appetite. If her safsari does not cover her whole face except for her eye, she has big noses with mucus running down her nose, pimples on her face. She comes out between Dur and Asr prayer, looking for children that do not take naps that left the house while adults are sleeping. She is a cautionary tale for children that are restless after lunch, unlike adults that are drowsy from heavy meal consisting of conscious or couscous and fr- grilled fish. If Azuzet al-Kela catches you, she will take the things you like and never return them. But the version of her my grandmother liked uh, to describe was that she would eat me if she caught me. Some other people say that she will kidnap you and take you somewhere with other gin and ghouls. She's a child's worst nightmare and the best incentive to stay well behaved. All right, this one's from Bahrain. The Magui is a gin of the night, it mimics the voices of one's friends and companions. The Magui spies fishermen at their trade before dawn. He mimics a companion's voice and lures them into the darkness, then drowns them. The Magui was also known to lure Naklawis, keepers of the date palms, away from their companions, and the terrible sight of this gin would stop their hearts. Even the home is not safe, for at night, hearing a loved one's voice, a villager may be lured outdoors, far from the fires and lights of the village, into Magui's trap. No dark night was safe of the Magui's enticement until electrical lights lit up the sky and pushed Magui far from human habitation and further into the wild. All right. Very cool. Very cool stories by Arab Lit. Dailyjstor.org, where it says life with a genie. A genie in the home can help a Muslim explore religious tenets, but it also interfere with the direct relationship between human and God. Khan writes that most Muslims believe that God created jinn long before humans, though how literally to take them is a subject of theological debate. Unlike angels, which are beings of pure goodness, jinns are more like humans. Some are Muslims, others are not. They're capable of both good and evil. They can think rationally and experience emotions, eat, have children, and die. But they have superhuman abilities, such as shape-shifting and extreme speed and strength. They live very long lives. In Islam, children are considered to have certain strength and presence that made them effective as conduits to the spirit world. One day in 2001, while doing research for her dissertation in Lahore, Khan visited the home of her Urdu teacher, co-researcher Farooq Sahib. She overheard the family talking about a gem named Suleiman, who had lived with them several years earlier. Sahib explained that an acquaintance had inherited a group of jinn from his magician father and gave them out to households like his made-up of good Muslims. 
Suleiman communicated with them through his daughter, Miriam, who was then eight years old. Klon notes that permitting the girl to shoulder this responsibility aligns with the Muslim con- conception of childhood. In Islam, children are free of religious obligations up to the age when they are seen as maturing, Khan writes. However, they are not seen as innocent creatures to be protected until this age. Rather, they are considered to have certain strength and prescience that makes them effective as conduits to the world of spirits. When the genie arrived, the family spent hours asking questions about the jinn world. Suleiman explained that he lived at the time of the prophet Muhammad, and the family viewed his religious devotion as admirable. One day, Miriam told her father that Suleiman wanted to taste human food. With Sahib's permission, the genie entered his body. That day, Farub Sahib related to me he had an appetite that frightened him with its enormity. He felt that he would have stayed rooted to the seat on the floor and would have eaten through the night if he had not run out of food. People outside the family also respected the words of the genie as relayed by Miriam. For a while, we were the most harangued house in the neighborhood, with the women dropping by at all time to ask us to locate lost keys, secure marriages, get their husbands' jobs, Sahib said. But Suleiman eventually returned to his previous home, which Sahib believed was probably a good thing since the family had become too reliant on the genie, weakening its direct relationship with God. Apparently, one more commonality between jinn and humans is that both can stay outside their welcome, or outstay their welcome. All right, and that's where the article ends. Very cool story. All right, we go now to medium.com, where they have gen stories. We've all heard the stories. Uh, this is by Tariq Patanem. We've all heard the stories, if you're Muslim, it goes something like this. My grandmother once told me that in her grandmother's village back in Pakistan, there was a lone abandoned mansion at the end of town. Yes, I'm talking about jinn, basically ghost stories. We all grew up with them, traded them, and transmitted them. And yet, weirdly enough, there always happened to be some friend's distant relative back in faraway country, or an uncle who for some odd reason had was at the Masid in the middle of the night 30 years ago and saw the vacuum cleaner flying around by itself. Shout out to Jen janitors out there keeping the mosque clean. Never did it happen right in front of our eyes here in America. So while I believed in Jen themselves and enjoyed entertainment of a campfire Jen story, I had a very hard time believing these stories actually happened. Until, that is, stories happened to me. The first stories. I never realized how dark it could get with zero light pollution. It was just like a pitch black blanket covered everything that should have been in sight. I could barely make out shadows of objects right in front of me. With nothing to do in this blinding darkness, I settled onto the sleeping bag strewn across the floor of the enormous foreign students and bar house tent. While at times this embar housed as many as seven people, now, no other students were here. I was alone. My sleep came in fits and bursts, 
Exhaustion battled the uncomfortableness of sleeping on a concrete floor. I was asleep one minute, awake the next, then asleep again. Suddenly, my eyes snapped open. In the darkness, I saw a man standing in the corner, leaning against the back wall as if he were waiting for me. I couldn't make out his exact figure, except that he was skinny, with a turban and thin beard. I briefly considered whether I was still asleep, but no, I was definitely awake. This was no doubt my embar that I saw around me. This was no doubt the stiff concrete floor that I felt underneath me. I fixed my eyes on the man's shadowy figure. He seemed to notice I was looking because he acknowledged my stare with a curt nod, then immediately began walking over. I couldn't move. I was too paralyzed by fear to do anything more than just lay there and watch as he came closer. As soon as he reached the edge of my sleeping bag, he passed right around and straight out of the tent. This was ridiculous. I had been warned that the Martarian villagers don't have much of a sense of privacy and walk into your tent without asking. But this, to barge into my tent in the middle of the night, then stroll out without saying a word? No, sir. This was too much. I grabbed the flashlight beside me and beamed it into the, onto the man just as he was leaving, and hot on his tail, ran out to confront him. The creepster would not get away from his intrusion. Now outside, I swung around my light, searching in the direction he went off. Left, right, straight ahead. Again, I swung my light around. There was no one there. Not man. No man. Not even a trace. The next day was a blur, studying, reading, eating, daydreaming about a sweet can of coca-cola that would never come and before i knew it the sun was setting once again this time as night inched closer it brought in a feeling of dread i thought of confiding in someone about what i had seen the night before but the mauritanians had already deemed me not enough of a man and i wasn't going to run ruin my image further by running over and crying about jen so i tried another strategy i could think of stay awake the whole night Needless to say, the strategy didn't work. Again, exhaustion from the over extreme heat overcame me, and I laid down to sleep. Again, my sleep was restless. One minute I was awake, the next I was dreaming a terrible dream. Then awake again. Towering over me, I could make the figure of someone I knew and disliked very, very much. But the situation didn't make any sense. This person I so disliked was halfway across the world in America. But here they were, standing over my head in a tiny remote village in Mauritania. I stared up in shock. He glowered down at me. I grabbed my book light from behind me and shined it on his face, hoping it would repel him. It didn't. Unfazed, he continued staring down a mincing stare. I leapt up from my sleeping bag, stumbled backwards. I turned my light on him, ready for whatever confrontation was necessary. If he pursued me to the middle of nowhere village at this ungodly hour, then I couldn't just let him go. But there was no confrontation. Whoever was standing right over me one second ago had vanished into thin air. More frightened than I'd ever been in my life, I looked longingly in the direction of Marabit's house, where I stayed the first night in Tour Marat. It would be so much more comfortable to stay there, sleeping close to the sheikh and his family. Surely no djinn would dare come there. 
but I held back. I must not be seen like a scaredy cat, I told myself. I must not seem afraid. Reflection. A month or two passed without any more visits of these apparitions. Even so, I remained a little scared and on edge. The Maritanians continued to frighten me with various stories of gin. They said, for instance, one lonely night, a student had been sitting at cell phone spot about a mile away from the village, casually browsing his phone, when he felt a pebble thrown at him. He ignored it, probably another villager playing a prank, he thought. Then, as he continued browsing, something he felt something sit beside him. He glanced up from the phone. Beside him was a strange man with a horrible, dis- distorted and ugly face, grinning widely. The stranger had never been seen around these parts, and he was never seen again. The story was probably more fiction than fact, but it was more than enough to frighten me. Every time I walked off alone to the cell phone spot around 3 a.m. and heard a wolf howling and wind whooshing, a stone dropping down the mountain, my heart nearly jumped out of his chest. One afternoon, I was flicking through a book titled Purification of the Heart when it happened upon a chapter about the fear that changed my perspective forever. Fear of anything besides God is from weakness of faith. Sheikhs Muhammad Maulud and Muhammad al-Hassan. I thought back to the incredible fear I had of jinns here and realized that my sense of fear did indeed stem from a weakness in faith. I had been programmed to fear way more than was natural. Fear had become an industry. Haunted houses, roller coasters, horror movies, thrillers. Like any industry, what started as something grounded in reality had taken an extreme in pursuit of more and more and more. We have been taught to fear everything and anything. We used to fear just the monster with the hideous face. Now we fear a little girl coming out of a TV. We used to fear a mass killer man. Now we fear the possessed killer baby. What used to be a natural reaction to the unnatural became an unnatural reaction to the irrational, freakish excitement and a passing thrill. A believer knows and fully internalizes the belief that nothing can prevent what God gives and no one can give what God prevents. The ultimate belief does not fear Jen. The ultimate believer does not fear Jen, because even if that Jen stood a hair's breadth from him and the most hideous creature he'd ever seen, what could the Jen do without the permission of God? The ultimate believer does not fear other man. Because what could the man do without the permission of God? The ultimate believer does not fear the crowd. He does not fear loneliness, an oppressor, poverty, torture, death. He does not fear anything, the most overwhelming master of the universe. What an amazing, incredibly empowering fear that is. The last story. Only two weeks remain now until I return to America. My back had become used to the concrete floor and my eyes to the darkness that enveloped everything. For months now, I'd never seen or heard anything out of the ordinary, until when one middle of the night I gradually awoke. From beside me, I could hear the sound of pouring water. I was almost as if someone had opened a giant carton of water I'd stored on my in my imbar, tilted it over ever so slightly, and was filling a jug slowly. 
Someone had come in my tent this late at night and is pouring out my water? Impossible. It must be a cow urinating just outside, as they did so often. Or surely I must be hallucinating. Ten seconds passed. The sound of pouring water continued. Twenty seconds. Thirty seconds. Cows do not urinate this long. One minute. I was definitely wide awake and not hallucinating now. I could clearly make out that the sound of pouring water came from only two or three feet behind me, precisely where I'd left my giant carton of water before going to bed. At that moment, I was almost certain that I turned around. I would have seen a figure standing right behind me pouring out the water, but I didn't turn around. There was no need. I smiled and thought back to the chapter I'd read. Fear of anything besides God is the weakness of faith. It was almost like God was testing me. I laughed settled back into bed, and slept like a baby. The man who fears nothing but God has nothing but God to fear. All right, and that's the end of the story. I thought he was going to tell me he saw something. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, let's see, see where we are. All right, let's take a little break. All right, so I've gone through quite a few articles, um, and you can get as in-depth, <laughs> and we could spend like three or four hours just talking about the subject. So I wanted to kind of narrow it down to some quick pop articles um, and stories uh, to leave you with before we end this episode. Um, so with that in mind, let's go over to mangobaz.com where they have a list for us of 11 absolutely terrifying real-life gen encounter stories that will keep you away from your sleep. <laughs> from Ramiza Ahmad. All right. As the days get colder, so does my heart. Just kidding. But no, there is something about cold weather which makes me want scary movies and give myself a good scare. Considering I'm someone who gets scared very easily, it is usually is not a good idea because I then have to sleep the night with the light on. But what is life without a little excitement? So I scoured the Pakistani interwebs for the scariest gin encounters for you to enjoy. Number one, the park encounter. A man posted about how he could meet this guy when he would jog through the park right after Fahir and only on the days he would be late for his fahir prayers. They met twice and even went to breakfast after the jog. He did not see him for a while, and one evening he was taking a stroll in the park at night, and he met him again. Except for this time, he looked a little strange. His voice was much deeper, and his features seemed darker and evil in a way. He asked whether he would like to have dinner together, just then, the man received a call on his phone. His ringtone was the azan, and he looked up. His friend had disappeared. After that, he caught a very high fever that lasted a few days. Number two, the faithful jinn. A man wrote about how he went to pray to Hajid at the mosque near his home, and while he was praying, he heard the door open, and someone came to pray next to him. He did not pay much attention to the man, and as he went out, saw that there was only one pair of slippers outside, which were his. 
He quickly ran back inside and saw no one was there. Number three, the ominous cat. Someone posted about a story how his maternal grandmother was on her deathbed. A cat started to appear in their home. The cat would even appear in the home when all the doors and windows were closed. It had a really bad smell and a very dirty coat. And whenever someone recited a holy verse from the Quran, it would vanish. After the grandmother passed away, the cat would still appear. And the few times that it did, everyone in the house fell ill. Yikes. It sounds like this story was commissioned by some dog lovers. Number four, the Bride of Khazad, Karsaz. This is a very popular story that everyone in Karachi has heard, and obviously, so have I. Apparently, quite a while ago, a young bride and her groom were headed home after their wedding. The car was involved in an accident, and both of them passed away. The bride is sometimes seen walking on the road by those driving by. A lot of people believe she is still there looking for someone to help her, and is reliving the accident. Number 5. The Dancing Girl this one is a story which was personally narrated to me by my maternal grandmother's maid. My grandparents' house is huge, and for a better part of the year, the house is unoccupied since they are out of the country. My grandmother's maid's family was staying at the house, and her brother-in-law was sleeping in the veranda, when suddenly he heard the sound of anklets. He opened his eyes to see a woman dressed in complete linga... Choli, asking him not to sleep there. He obviously freaked out and ran off to join his family. Safe to say, I never feel completely at ease in certain rooms in my Nano's house. Number six, the bed companion. This happened to a friend's mother. She was taking a nap in an afternoon and suddenly felt her bed shift like it would if someone had laid down beside her. She turned to look at what it was and saw the profile of a man laying beside her. She could not make out his face. She turned back around and she couldn't move, which led her to read some verses from the Quran until she felt like she could move again. Number seven, the strange hitchhiker. This, another story of my mother's uncle told me. After attending a wedding late at night, a young couple was making their way home on their motorbike. On a stranded road, their bike stopped working, and while the man was trying to figure out what was wrong, a strange-looking man appeared and asked them for help. The man was already frustrated and told that he could not help him and couldn't see that he was already knee-deep in his own problems. All of this happened while his pregnant wife looked on. The strange man was angered by his response, and said something threatening, and disappeared. Later on, the couple went home and did not think much about the incident. A few days later, the wife delivered her baby. However, the baby had a deformity in his school, which looked like someone, or rather something, had taken a huge bite out of it. Number 8. The Summoning Goes Wrong Like a lot of young teenagers, the person who wrote this was in the mood for some fun with their cousins. And of course, like all of us, at one point, they tried to summon some ghosts. One of the cousins started chanting something under her breath, when suddenly a cold wind blew in the room, even though no windows were open. And then next second, the cupboard fell down. 
The kids all screamed and ran out of the room and never really spoke about the incident again. Number nine, the other mother. A man posted about how when he was a child and staying in their nanny's house for the summer, something really freaky happened. He was sitting with his mother when suddenly his cousin came into the room and asked how she had gotten inside the house and the room so quickly. Both son and mother were confused since she had been in the room all evening. The cousin then told her that just a few minutes ago she was outside in the garden when, and when they asked her if she was okay, she said she was tired and went toward the house. The kids followed her to make sure she was okay, but then she had disappeared out of sight quickly. Number 10, the humming. This guy posted about how he was making chai and heard a faint humming of knots. He ignored it until he realized it was 1 a.m. and the only house near his place had been empty for the last six months. While this could have been another explanation, it's still scary to think about. Number 11, the shaking windows. A colleague narrated this story to me. She was sitting in her room in the evening when suddenly all of the windows in her house started shaking with a lot of force. There was no wind outside, and the force was so great that it couldn't have been caused by mere wind. She rushed outside her room to find that her father in the next room. He's a man who has leaned into religion, learned in religion, and has people come to him for spiritual help. He told her not to worry since the spirits were outside, were trying to get in, but they couldn't. How scary is that? All right, Pacific Standard Magazine by Gar Adams, the Jinn of Oman. On the edge of the Arabian desert, one remote outpost encounters evil spirits with disturbing frequency. Muhammad al-Hanai points to the spot behind his modest cement house where the inferno appeared eight months ago. Even today, as the blaze might rekindle any moment, Al-Hanai stopped short of his yard, halting at the edge to trace the shape of the green flames that hovered ominously for several minutes above the sand, neither growing nor relenting. His fingers shake as he remembers, and outlines for me, the odd diagonal angles. Spontaneous fire under the scorching sun in this patch of desert might also be expected, except that the bizarre or that the blaze in Al-Hanai's yard broke out amid sand and rock on a cloudless night during the bitter chill of an Oman winter. And then there's the matter of the awful cackling he heard echoing within the flames, and the pale woman in rags who stood atop his whimsy, or his wispy sadir tree, just before the blaze, who vanished as quickly as it had appeared. Al-Hanai dashes back up his staircase and insists on closing the door tightly before continuing our discussion of the fire. Because outside, hidden among the endless sand and shrub, the evil demons that plague the desert town of Bala Oman are almost certainly listening. A devout Muslim who attended the country's premier university raised five children and worked as a supervisor at a factory 20 miles down the road. Al-Hanai is not delusional, nor is he alone in disturbing experience. Stories about confrontations with malicious spirits in Bala and rampant speculation as to why they intrude so frequently here abound within the tight-knit community and have spilled out into the rest of the country.
today now, Friday, around Maghrib prayer, this is when the evil jinn are almost are most active in Balah. Alhanai declares, while the sunlight fades and he draws tight the blinds in his sitting room. Everyone here has an experience with them. He continues in a lower voice, so the jinn might not hear. But with so many regular jinn encounters, the community is divided over what to do about these spirits, whether indeed anything at all can be done, or e even whether they ha should be acknowledged in the first place. Like the desert darkness that settles each night over the sandy outpost, here in Bala, the burden of jinn is real. Belief in spirit beings is one, in one form or another, from the wailing banshees of Irish mythology to the corpse-eating Jikinikis, ghosts of Japan, Buddhist lore, transcends geography, faith, and ethnicity. Nor are these beliefs simply relegated by bygone eras. In 2013, a National Harris Poll found that in addition to the two-thirds of Americans who believe in angels, over a quarter believe in witches and nearly half believe in ghosts. Among Muslims, the second largest religious group in the world, belief in spirit beings is common, and described descriptions of them are particularly vivid in Islamic texts. The Quran tells the story of the birth of the jinn, supernatural creatures born of smokeless fire, while further verses and hadith, collection of quotes attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, that supplement the Holy Book of Islam, lay out further details of the origins and principles of jinn. These texts present an unsettling picture of jinn, extremely powerful beings made in the eyes of Allah alongside humans, but with a proclivity for following the evil-led lead of Iblis, a haughty jinn, later known as Satan, who refuses to bow to the superiority of Adam and subsequently vowed to lead all humans astray. Jinn also enjoy lurking in dark, unclean places. The Islamic doctrine often offers a supplication to ward off these foul spirits, specifically for when entering shadowy or impure places like the bathroom. In the name of God, I take refuge with you from all evil and evildoers. Comprehensive polling suggests that belief in jinn is substantial across the Muslim world. Recent studies in Morocco, Pakistan, and other Islamic diaspora in the United Kingdom place the rate of belief in jinn above 80% among adherents to Islam. In theocracies like Saudi Arabia, jinn even regularly make the news for brushes with the law. In 2009 court case, a Medina family tried to take a jinn to court for harassment, claiming that the jinn had evicted them from their home. And while rich oral histories of jinn encounters exist in far west as Casablanca, it is in Arabia where many of these tales often spawned. The Arabian Peninsula is the heartland of jinn and is the birthplace of Islam, the focal point of many jinn legends and beliefs, writes scholar Robert Leb Lebling in his book, Legends of the Fire Spirits, Jinns and Genies, from Arabia to Zanzibar. But why is Bala, a nowhere town over a thousand miles east of Islam's epicenter, so afflicted? Like jinn concealed in shadow, the clues are cloaked deep in the annals 
of its unique history. Hemmed in by a vast mountain range to the north and dizzying expanse of open desert to the south, Bala initially looks like one many towns strung together like beads along the winding road carved in the Oman's sleepy interior. But one imposing structure makes Bala stand out among the country's chain of inlet settlements. The 12th century mud brick fort that looms over the town, casting shadows over the market square that sits near its base. From this medieval Islamic stronghold, the area's dominant tribe, the Banu Niban, ruled for three centuries and the center of Ibadism, the dominant school of Islam in Oman to the present day, emerged, as did stories of evil jinn who prowled the area. Bala was the center of military, religion, and politics in that age, says Abdu Fattah al-Hamari, a historian who worked on the Bala fort during its meticulous 25-year restoration project process from 1987 to 2012. While sitting under its mighty mud-brick tower rising 155 feet in the air, all and powerful people attracted powerful jinn, he admits, recalling the stories of ancient Balawi generals who were potent enough to stand atop the fort and command the jinn. But Bala's residents needed more than just inspiring figures, and for everyone else in town, success in the harsh medieval desert required tangible protection, which came in the form of 14 kilometers of impressive walls built in the 15th century to encircle the city. Walls meant real safety and became an integral part of the local lore, affecting the town's perception of outsiders and spirits, even into modernity. Outside the walls meant danger. Stories circulated around town of Bedouin who would come into the walls and kidnap people, take them to Dubai and Saudi Arabia and sell them like goats, as well as evil spirits that ate dogs and cannibalized humans writes Dr. Mandana Limbert, Associate Professor of Anthropology at CUNY, Queens, in her book on Bala in the 1970s. Even now, many Balawis continue to relay origin stories rooted in suspicion and distrust for three ancient mosques, now reduced to ruins, sitting just outside the town's walls. The stories of our grandfathers told us were that they were old Sufi mosques, says one 70-year-old Bala resident over a cup of tea in the town square. Some stories said that the mosque just flew in and landed there one day. Some also said that the Sufis were banished from the town because of their collaboration with jinn, and they brought the jinn here, he continues. And though tales of jinn may existed in a region even before Bala Fort, the word ghoul in the cognate ghoul a monster found in pre-Islamic Arabian storytelling, and whether or not stories of ruthless cannibalizing spirits or mysterious Sufi outsiders in Bala harbors any kernels of truth, their place is certainly deeply rooted in the town's own mythology. Today, stories of jinn sightings in Bala still range from disquieting to downright bone-chilling. I sit with one family that woke each week to a low moaning outside the house, and each week they would find strange mounds of rocks and sand meticulously piled directly underneath the window of their infant son's room. 
A group of farmers tell me of the gin they heard haunting the palm oasis dotting town. Preying on them after dusk by calling their names across the valley until they are dangerously lost and bitterly cold. But outright possession by these malevolent spirits is much more terrifying than these fleeting encounters. If the acute physical afflictions are unnerving, one middle-aged man blew directly into my ears to convey the sensation he felt rattling through his skull for months. The mental consequences and personality changes are categorically disturbing. I found my brother some nights muttering against a wall, muttering unintelligible words, one man claims of his thirty something year old of his thirty year old sibling. In the oldest section of Bala's downtown souk area, the shopkeepers fretfully point out two spots where spirits are believed to enter humans. An old stoop near a tea shop that they adamantly insist must be avoided, and a leafy tree casting shadows over the market's main square. But others maintain that a heart doesn't properly recognize the power of God. The soul becomes susceptible to jinn possession. Many people acquire jinn when they start sentences and actions without first saying, in the name of God, or when giving a compliment without first saying, God has willed it, explains Muhammad Awadi, a former shopkeeper who spends his days reading the Quran with them within the market. But it is the course of treatment after someone has been possessed by jinn that's truly the most de- delicate topic in town. As one young resident puts it, with jinn, there is a fine line between Islam and something else. An exorcism starts to cross into something else territory. He pauses, searching for the right word. Something else even darker than jinn. Like Christianity and other religions that harbor beliefs in non-human spirits, Islam has its own traditions and exorcism. But in Oman, another exorcising ritual known as Zar also exists. In the academic journal Mental Health, Religion and Culture, Dr. Samir Al-Adawi, a psychiatrist and researcher at Oman's Sutran Qaboos University, describes the mechanics of Zar exorcism. The essence of the ritual is to coerce the spirit to possess the medium so that it reveals why it possessed that particular person. The shaman will lure its own, his own czar spirit to possess him or her. The shaman is then used to lure the unknown czar spirit of the possessed person. The client or possessed or afflicted one wears special dresses for the occasion and often fasts until the ceremony begins and ends. The shaman is sometimes also trained singer who knows the songs and rhythms for each particular spirit. As he or she sings each spirit's song and watches for a reaction, he or she is able to diagnose which type of spirit has taken possession of the person and how to exercise it. In Bala, concerns about czar revolve around whether its ceremonies and rituals actually can be classified as Islamic exorcism runs somehow parallel to it or more worryingly fall into shirk or beliefs that cannot be reconciled within the non monotheistic or within the monotheistic framework of islam though it is practiced in several muslim majority countries from egypt to iran czar probably originated in ethiopia and was brought to the muslim world by ethiopian slaves but in 
Oman, Zar was transferred via Zanzibari slaves during the mid-19th century, when large territories of East Africa were controlled by Oman. And this tie to Zanzibar alone is problematic for some Omanis. Like America, Oman has a quiet history of race and cultural tension with people whose ancestors were slaves, said Al, said Said Al-Ismali, an Omani educator who proclaims two decades of experience communicating with Jen. Some Omanis see Zanzibari heritage in Oman as foreign, and they don't trust it. But people within the community of Zar practitioners are quick to espouse the ceremony's inherent Islamic soul. I've heard stories. People think Zar means eating hot coals, performing such rituals in the desert, or human blood sacrifices. Everything, says Harib al-Shikali, a Zar exorcist who estimates that he has treated over 5,000 patients during his two-decade-long practice mostly from Bala in the surrounding areas. We only want to activate evils inside the human body and free people from them. This is, is Islamic, he insists. To bolster his point, Al-Shagali grabs his young apprentice son. Zar Shaman's skills are often passed down through generations to relay one of their most desperate hopeless cases. A man and a woman who came for treatment after losing 11 children before the age of three. But after an exorcism where the al-Shakali claims he wrestled the spirit of a jinn from the wife's body, the couple now has three children, all of them healthy and approaching their teens. The only sacrifice for them was a small zakat, Islamic charity offering. The son says, what we did was Islam. Al-Shukhali is especially incensed by some of the stories of spirits he hears around towns by people who look down on Zanzibari jinn beliefs and practices. Some Omanis say they see dead relatives walking around the market and then disappearing. This is not in Islam. This is only ghost stories, he says, tossing an amulet back and forth between his hands. But in the end, this is all jinn. He says, looking up at the sky as another sunset darkens the town square, they want to tear us apart, our minds, communities, with arguments, disbelief, and everything. And all the time the jinns are still here, waiting. This is the burden of Bala. All right, very cool article. And let's wrap it up. All right, very cool stories, and again, I could go on for another two hours on all of the stories that people have online of gin encounters. I think it's very cool, and it, it parallels with what we have over here as far as demon and supernatural stories. Um, I do think it's more explained in the gin culture because um, it tells the origins and stuff like that in the Quran and um, different books that they have um, telling us how they fit in with us as humans. And not to say that the Bible doesn't, but I'm saying it's a little more clear when I was reading the jinn lore and the history of the jinn on just where they fit in all of this.
So I thought it was really cool and definitely a fascinating subject. I would love to know more about. Um, with that being said, I tried to give you guys an example of some of these spooky stories and also some scientific stuff in there too. And yeah. So if you guys would like to join our Facebook page, the group is called Paranormal Stories Spooky Shiz. And Spooky Shiz is in parentheses. So make sure to join us there. It's where you can connect with me and send me any spooky stories for future episodes. All right. Um, with that being said, make sure to cleanse your space and stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>